1: Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton.
2: Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you with me, as always. Uh, Much to discuss today, as is our habit here in in the Freedom Hut. And if you'd like to call in, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Five. Uh, some of the topics we'll be hitting today include the Sanctuary City Showdown and also uh, the Immigration-DACA fight, the, uh, the latest on that, but the Sanctuary uh, City component of this is getting to be bigger and bigger. Um, also, all the different aspects of the uh, Russia-Trump collusion narrative, the investigations, the Mueller probe, we're going to jump into that in just a moment. And we're uh, very pleased that we have in studio with us uh, later on, on the sh- later on the show, we have Dr. Jordan Peterson, who is, uh, he's a professor, he's a clinical psychologist. He's also a, a public intellectual who is really uh, thought-provoking and getting young people to see the, well, I'll let him speak. for. I'll, I'll let him explain all of it because there's a lot of stuff going on. He's got a book, though, 12 Rules for Life where he's basically trying to sit down the reader and be like, here's what's real. Here's what matters. Here's what we should all strive to care about and how we should approach our day-to-day. It's really uh, some really profound stuff. I have, it, uh, have the book at home on my uh, nightstand right now. But let's get into a, what will really be a follow-up, in a sense, to what we talked about yesterday first. I mean, I, I have a, a news story to update you on. But the analysis is a continuation of the theme, which is, I would guess, what you would expect here. The notion that the FBI could just happen to lose the text messages of two people using government property who are both in law enforcement, that their text messages could disappear uh, for a period of time that is highly... Convenient for the purposes of evading public scrutiny. That that's just too much for any of us to bear. There had to be a problem there. Right. You've had uh, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders even said as much earlier today.
0: There is great cause for concern. It is absolutely outrageous that this number of text messages uh, have gone missing when we already know these two individuals were at the center of controversy from previously released text messages. It's quite convenient for them, uh, quite inconvenient for the president and certainly for the American people to have this type of uh, problem within uh, our top law enforcement agency.
2: All right. So there you have... White House press secretary making the case that many of us have been which there's just no way there's no way that we're gonna say oh yeah sure uh, this time around that makes sense so now there's an update to the story there's an update to the story in, in a sense you could say that uh, we have additional data points to add in, to add into the mix here uh, first off you've got that and this is on Fox News, thousands of FBI phones were affected by the technical glitch that the DOJ says prevented five months' worth of text messages between FBI officials Peter Strzok and Lisa Page from being stored or uploaded into the Bureau's archive system, federal law enforcement officials tell Fox News. Now, this could be, and they're calling it a, a, a massive, a massive
1: glitch here. So we just... Went ahead and fixed the glitch. Mm. Great. So uh, Milton has been let go. Well, just a second there, Professor. We, uh, we fixed the glitch. <laughs> the glitch.
2: Have they fixed it? Not yet. But if you've seen Office Space, you know what I'm talking about there. Uh, they are saying it's a massive glitch that's affected many, many thousands of phones. Now, this could be—see, we needed an answer. And this is the way that I approach each stage of this investigation and of this what is really a massive political war. That's what this is. This is a political war inside the country right now with the future of the administration, with the control of government, with the White House and with a populist political movement that has not just unseated, but threatened the very foundations of a power structure that will do everything that it can to stop this change to stop this uh political movement from achieving its goals. So I look at it at each phase and tell you what I think is going on because we know we know the broad strokes. We know there's some deep state anti-trumpers. We know the media is just completely dead set against him, right? There are some things that you bring to this show with each day. We have a we have a shared understanding of what the the broad themes are here. Then looking at the data points as they pile up, and specifically this text message FBI cell phone component, okay, we, I said that that was unacceptable, and you agreed, and we all knew. Oh, yeah, sorry, just totes lost all the text messages from these two people that are at the center of this firestorm right now. That wasn't going to fly. There's no way that was going to work. Now they're saying, well, actually, it was thousands of phones. I am inclined to say, all right. So we have an. So this is just the FBI's unbelievably shoddy IT practices. By the way, I mean this is these are the people that you know can pull your phone records and pull your emails for who knows how far back. But they're doing criminal investigations all the time. People's lives hang in the balance of their of what their work product is. And they, on their work phones, could have this happen. I mean, think about this, folks, right? There could be, think about how much, put aside the Russia collusion investigation, all this for a moment, there could be exculpatory evidence in these thousands of cell phones where they can't bring up the text messages. This could affect discovery of cases. I mean, you want to talk about losing faith in institutions? Assuming that this is true, and I do think that this would be hard this would be hard to fake and get away with although i'm not going to say that that's look what the irs did all of a sudden there were these servers that were being you know chopped up and hillary with her bleach bit trying to get every last part of digital data wiped at a you know military industrial grade level off of her server so i'm not saying there's no chance that this is some kind of dirty tricks i'm just saying okay well this would at least be an answer to the question or this would be a, a response to, you can't tell us you just don't have the text messages for these two folks. Sorry. You're going to say you don't have it for thousands of FBI agents and, and lawyers? Okay, maybe that means this isn't, I think you see where I'm going here. Maybe that means this isn't some cover-up conspiracy, but uh, not exactly helping the sense of uh, competence that they should feel over at the FBI. Not, not improving public perception. These are the uh, super G men who can get it done and you know are always on the case. Like I, I've heard stories about government federal federal bu- uh, bureaucratic IT systems and the spending and the I, I'm not even kidding, I will mean, tell you when I was at the NYPD, I can tell you this because this is you know, open source software. When I was at the NYPD, some of the stuff that they were using was like having to use you know tab, tab, tab. C colon. I mean, it was like I was back in circa 1986, you know, playing Pac-Man. I mean, now that was the NYPD. That wasn't at the federal level. But trust me, government IT systems can be really crappy. That all said, there's also at least a little part of me, and I, I can't prove this, but we're at the point now where we're analyzing the known facts, not a lot of new facts out as of today on this. There's a little part of me that's saying, are we so we just got to take their word for this, huh? We got to take their word for they they lost thousands of text messages. This would be like trying to hide the evidence by burning down the forest. But you know, is, would it be the would it be the craziest thing that we've heard of? Hillary was running a a server out of her basement, which she used almost exclusively while Secretary of State used BleachBit on the server. Had the server operating at one point, or storage of emails operating. Out of a closet, I think it was in Colorado, and what do we, you know, at at what point do we get to say, okay, well, that's not, (laughs) that's not to be expected, that's not normal. Lois Lerner and the IRS targeting members of the Tea Party, and that's just a fact, that's record, that's not a supposition, that's not analysis. And yet, you know, hard drives. Oh, we got to destroy those hard drives. Yeah, you know, hard drives. Oh, and Hillary lost, you know, whatever it was, 30,000 emails at one point. All this stuff, right? You're seeing there's a there's a pattern here. There's a pattern. But on, it's, on the text messages, I have said this to you before because I have too much respect for this audience to try and pander and just say what I know will get a big reaction and be like, oh, man, you know, Buck's really, he's really pushing that hard. He's on the forefront of this. When I think that that's where we should go, that's where I take us. You know, when I'm fired up about something, it's just how I feel here on the show, and it's how I'm going to feel when I go home and I talk to Miss Molly or I talk to my family or what I'm thinking about at night. It's you're getting you're getting 100 the real deal. So the text messages thing, I've always I've been saying, you know, okay, it's bad, but I think they're going to have to find the messages. I think if you listen to the show early in the week, you'll see that. Which now brings me to another. Part of this whole story that we're going to dive into more in just a moment here, but the whole, the whole release the memo phenomenon, right? which I'm seeing these different news outlets trying to push a story that Russian bots are the ones saying release the memo. Uh, I'm not a Russian bot, but it'd be a very good one. But no, really, I'm not a Russian bot. I'm pushing for this. I once had a uh, top secret security clearance. I-, I understand how these things work. I want to see this friggin' memo. I want to know what's in it. And the notion that, that they're trying to push in any way that we don't have a right to see this or there's no obligation of the government to come clean on this with us just goes to show you how corrupt the whole system really is. Some of you were yesterday um, after the show. I, I always read as much of the feedback as I can, and I always get a kick out of how many of you I'm getting... I don't know the, the inbox, the Facebook inbox has thousands and thousands and thousands of messages, but I'm reading them all the time. I go home and I try to read through as many as I can and I try to catch up each week so that I'm totally up to up to speed on what you all are thinking about the show. And some of you are saying, well, you know I, I think that you're uh, not seeing the significance of the memo or you're not being, you're not as uh, outraged by this as you should be as you should be and I, I would just want to make clear. I'm not saying the memo is no big deal. We don't know yet, so I can't definitively tell you, but and I've certainly spoken to people who think it's going to be very damning for the Russia Trump collusion narrative. But what I'm saying is is trying to prepare you for the reality of what even if the memo is that bad, we will be up against. I'm here to tell you that the problem of the government, of the deep state, of the anti-Trumpers, of the hashtag resistance inside of the federal government, inside of the prosecutorial arm of the DOJ and the Department of Justice overall, I'm here to tell you it's actually worse. I'm here to tell you that just because the memo may be as damning as everybody says it is, it doesn't mean that the fight will be over. We will have taken the hill, so to speak, but it's just going to be another phase in the battle and they will get even uglier over this because they'll be more desperate because they'll have lost even more credibility. The forces arrayed against the Trump administration will be all encircling the wagons even more so when this whole Russia nonsense has been exposed as the grotesque fraud that it is. I'm just getting you ready for the next phase Because if this memo that's being talked about now by all these different Republicans, if it says Fusion GPS was the basis for the FISA warrant and it and that was it and that's what they did. And an opposition research was all that it took to weaponize the intelligence community's capabilities against a presidential campaign. I mean, this is mind blowing, monumental stuff. If all that is true. I'll be very pleased that we finally are moving forward in this discussion and in this narrative, in this fight. But I don't want to lead you into a false sense of it's going to be all smooth sailing from there. Hillary sent over 100 emails with classified information from her home server folks, and the FBI knew, they investigated, and they did not bring charges. What makes you think that if they absolutely nail some senior FBI guy for this, that we're going to get a different result. I mean, if they if they have them, if this memo is as bad as you can possibly imagine, the Democrats will lie, cheat, and steal in order to prevent it from being the end of their Russia collusion narrative. They'll do whatever they have to do. That's what we are up against. So... I'm not downplaying the memo. I'm trying to prepare all of you for the reality of what will happen, even if the memo is as bad as so many of us think that it is. You're not on a sports field here. We're not playing by the same rules as the other side. Look at how dirty they've been willing to be up to this point. Look at the leaks against the Trump administration. Look at the psychotically anti-Trump media coverage. Look at the different storylines. One week, he's crazy. The next week, he's just senile. The next week, it's Logan Act. The next week, it's the emoluments clause. The next week, he's a Russian agent. I mean, these people have lost their minds. This is a mass psychosis, folks. We are up against a movement of mass psychosis. You think that, granted, a very powerful data point in this argument is going to stop this? Oh, no. We will just be entering a new phase, and I want us all to be prepared for that. We're going to have more on this in just a moment. 844 900 2825. 844 900 Buck. Light them up. What do you think? We'll be right back.
3: Just over 50,000 text messages between Lisa Page and Peter Strzok. What we also know is that for about a five-month period, those text messages never got into the FBI server. We're going to use every option available to find the text messages through other forms, whether it's the old phones, whether it's uh, going to some of these um, technology companies that were Mm -hmm. involved and seeing if they have them. Uh, The attorney general said we'll leave no stone unturned trying to find the text messages, and obviously we are reviewing immediately how they didn't get into the server in the first place.
2: There's a DOJ spokesperson, Sarah Isger, actually an old associate of mine from the days at the Blaze. She came on as a guest a few times. I'd always thought she was a very... uh, a very astute and effective speaker and analyst so I'm glad to see that she others have recognized that she was an excellent an excellent guest on my show back then and is doing a very good job at the Department of Justice now but she's talking about the text messages and I mean fifty thousand I know there's I go back and forth on this on the one hand you, you know you can't be just all <laughs> I, I gotta I gotta not say things like all fire and fury right because the book all storm and thunder, or something. You know, you can't just be gloom and doom about where the deep state is going to take this country unless we manage to stop them. You also have to kind of laugh sometimes a little bit. I think a, a bit of a bit of dark humor under the circumstances. Uh, Fifty thousand text messages—that's a lot. I I think you know Miss Molly's away on on work this week. I think we probably text once or twice during the day. You know, say hi. Not uh, 50,000. I know that's over a few months period, but we could do the math. Once a day, it's 30 a month. It's not 50,000. <laughs> it's not, It's not. I don't know what was going on there, but I, I think that's a whole separate discussion. Uh, look, there's no way we're not going to see, I think. I shouldn't say there's no way because I would also assume there's no way Hillary Clinton could get away with what she did, but she did, right? Uh, there's, you would also assume that in and I, I have to compare some of this. By the way, that's really where I, I want to go next is the disparate treatment of the Hillary email case and the way the Trump Russia allegations have been handled. Is I think more than anything else gives you the gives you clarity on what's really happened here. Gives you clarity on on how corroded and unethical, how lacking in integrity, and how corrupted. That's the word I was really looking for, how corrupted the Federal Department of Justice had become over the years. Let's not forget, do we think that eight, eight years of the Obama administration, eight years of Eric Holder and then Loretta Lynch, what would that do to an institution? Let's think about that for a moment. And all of a sudden, what we're seeing here, it starts to make a lot more sense, doesn't it?
1: He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Are you, clear, then? Are you backing off of what was spoken last night? No, I'm saying exactly the same thing. There
4: is a group of individuals within the FBI that was hold- they were holding secret off-site meetings. These texts pretty well laid in my lap as well, and they-, they really do raise very serious concerns about what is happening in the FBI. It's my responsibility to keep digging. Strzok and Page were very high level within the FBI. I mean, Peter Strzok's title was FBI Deputy Assistant Director of the Counterintelligence Division. These aren't low level underlings. These are individuals that had access to the highest level, including the director of the FBI.
2: Very important point there from uh, Ron Johnson. He's Speaking of Bill Hammer over at Fox News, this isn't just some FBI agents. Strzok was. The person, short of the director or deputy director at the FBI, best situated to abuse power in the pursuit of hurting the Trump campaign and then the Trump administration and helping Hillary. Best situated. I I can't think of anybody else who would have been in a better position as a top person in the counterintelligence wing of the FBI. And then you also have this notion of a secret society. And that's a, that was either a thing or it wasn't, just like I said with the text message. So we'll find out. I think it's tough for them to keep that a secret for all that long, if that really existed, if it wasn't, as I said, a, the possibility of a, a very ill-advised offhand remark. I also have a tough time with that. The level of arrogance, hubris, and stupidity of these folks at the FBI, who one of the main parts of their job is just pulling people's email and phone records and then nailing them. So this is what, the, what they do is pull records, right? That's how most cases really these days are put together. You know, we're, we're way past it was Colonel Mustard in the living room with a candlestick because of some great old-fashioned detective work, right? I mean, this is, we're in a technological age. So they're pulling phones, they're pulling records all the time and they would be so casual about the things that they were saying in this on work phones every. Look, if it were private phones, I try to be fair in my assessments here because if you just want, you know, rah, you know, hair on fire, there's plenty of people that are already doing that. Ah, oh, you know, it's crazy, everything's crazy, you know. That we finally got them. I mean, don't look how many times have I told you, oh, yeah, now it's all, the Mueller probe's about to end, it's all over. There are people out there who are saying stuff like that, and then they're wrong, and the next day, and they go, oh, sorry. But this is all worth getting into because it gives you a deeper picture. Uh, I mean, I, I, re- I remember what it was like when I was at the intelligence division, and I had a BlackBerry, and we, we knew that anything used there, because it was it could be subpoenaed. And very likely may have been if it, you know, if it touched on a certain case, It's part of discovery. How arrogant, how uh, how dumb could they be to be working on a case at that level, that level of political sensitivity on their work devices? I'm bringing it up only because not, not just to say, oh, look at how sloppy they are. And there's a lot of the federal government's huge. You know, this is like saying, hey, do you hear about that state school? that has 40,000 students, yeah, there are some real idiots there. Well, there are also some geniuses there, right? So it, it, it's a meaningless, it's so large, there's so many people there, is that to, to base your sense of the ability or even the conduct of the whole institution on one or two individuals is not fair, right? By the way, I think that's probably true of every state school in the country. There are some geniuses, there are some morons, right? I think we could all agree that's that's the case. So with Struck though, I don't think that he's an idiot. I don't think that he in his mind the same way that Hillary wasn't careless. Just just follow my thread here for a moment. Hillary wasn't careless with her emails based on her perception of what of what reality was going to be, which is that nobody would ever know she would become president and there would never be a problem. Under that Conception of reality of, of what the future would be, yeah, she's gonna just write whatever she writes in the emails and not pay very close attention, and and we almost didn't find out about it. That's a, right now. It's so easy to look in hindsight and say, oh my gosh, you know, of course, we, of course, we barely found out about it, and she almost made it go away. The media tried to make it go away. I was on CNN saying if she had classified on there, she violated the law, and there's almost no way. This is very early on. Almost no way that she did not have classified on there if she was using that email exclusively. And they brought on, quote, political and They're like, oh, that's not true. Hey, baby. I'm like, you've never even held a clearance, bozo. Bozos get paid a lot over there. A lot of bozos run around at CNN. Honk, honk. So I think it's similar in the Struck case, in the Struck situation here, in this way. Hillary's going to win. It's No, no, no one's ever going to find out. Come on. You know, it's a, Don't be crazy. You have to be looking at this whole, all these actions of the deep state in the context of senior government officials who don't just think that Trump isn't going to win. They assume Hillary's going to be their boss. They're 99% sure Hillary's going to be the boss. So in that instance, you think any of them are worried at what they say about Trump? No, they'll be heroes. They'll be heroes if Hillary's the boss and this comes out, right? So that's one part of it. That's on the text messages. But now onto something else that came up, came up today. Something else that I think is very important. Um, you have this discussion about sitting down with Mueller. Should Trump sit down with Mueller? And, and the obvious response, based on what we have seen, based on already process crimes charged against people that, uh, for whatever reason, got caught up in the machinery of this investigation. And I I hate it when people say, oh, just tell the truth, just tell the truth. You see, I've been in those rooms before. I've had to be uh, interrogated, may not be the proper term, but that's certainly what it feels like. I've been in a situation where, I've been in a few situations where government investigators, while I was working for the government, wanted to ask me questions. On the record, not publicly, but on the record for the institutions, shall we say. And I've had to push back and I've seen where they're going with stuff. And, the, you know, you work on 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 high impact, sensitive cases. Guess what? There's always some there's always some politics, uh, politics attached to that, too. And trust me, one little misstep from from good old Buck Sexton was going to be not forgotten by any of them. They would have been very happy to have made an example out of me, and I, wouldn't, I wasn't trying to lie about anything, mislead about anything ever. It doesn't matter. Because unfortunately, there are a lot of folks who are unethical but are in positions where they are supposed to be the enforcers of ethics and rules and propriety and law. And they get away with using that power for their own personal score settling. So I know what that's like. I know what it's like to sit in that room and go, they're not really after the truth here. And by the way, one misstep and I can get fired and maybe worse, maybe worse. So those who say, oh, just tell the truth. It's always just tell the truth. First of all, do you have any idea what those with these? Not as an issue for Trump, as I'm sure he would tell all of us. But think about what it is for some of the other folks. The cost of sitting down through all this Mueller nonsense, just a waste that's a big part of it. The process is the punishment. It's a waste. Tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars for some of the people that aren't even going to get charged and have nothing to do with anything. I mean, it for the Manaforts of the world, forget about millions. Millions. You look at cases like somebody like Bernie Carrick, he, he could have fought even more, but didn't want to just keep paying he didn't want to go bankrupt, paying the legal bills, figured I might as well do something here. And that's the way the system works, unfortunately. That's the truth of the criminal justice system, particularly if you're a political target, because it's, they'll spend any amount of money to get you if it looks good in the newspaper. To them, they don't care if it makes the other side of the uh, of the political aisle upset. So I've been in that seat. So to, to suggest, oh, just tell the truth, it's not that simple. It never is. And this is why you need to have a lawyer there, and that's why I'm concerned about this. And you know, you got Dershowitz, law professor at Harvard. Uh, He had this to say about sitting down with Mueller.
1: Mueller has the authority to simply issue a subpoena. Nobody is above the law when it comes to a grand jury subpoena. So at this point, something has to be negotiated. I think in the end, there's going to be no
2: choice but to sit down and have an interview limited in time, limited in
1: scope with his lawyers present. And hopefully he'll answer the questions yes and no without elaborating too much.
2: This whole special counsel is a disaster, everyone. I've been consistent on it from the beginning. It's a terrible idea. It's unjust. It is the Department of Injustice right now. This should not be happening. And the President of the United States is going to sit there. He's going to answer questions about the exercise of his constitutional authority here. He's completely allowed to fire the FBI director. He can fire the FBI director Because he does not like the color of the FBI director's shoes. That's just the way that it goes. So what are they even talking about? Oh. Maybe they get him in a perjury trap, but more likely they just want to have more down the line for the Congress, if it turns Democrat, to go after Trump. They'll just say, oh, well, you know, even if they don't bring obstruction charges, they'll say that this falls under the uh, rubric of high crimes and misdemeanors. But I want to note that you got the president now who may have to sit down with Mueller and all this stuff is happening. There was another sit down that we've got more information about that tells us a whole lot about what was really going on with this investigation. What really happened to General Flynn? Who is yet another uh, political casualty of this whole situation, whom I do believe, by the way, and I believe he should. I think the president should pardon him. So I'll just go on record and say I think the president will. I think the president should. I am one of the only things I was ever furious with George Bush about as as my commander in chief. You know, I was working the CIA reporting in the executive branch. Of the Pre- I was furious he didn't pardon Scooter Libby. Just commuted a sentence. That was a disgrace. I was with Cheney on that one. A hundred percent left a man on the field of battle. So to speak. I know Scooter Libby was not actually on the field of battle, but that was the phrase. All right. Uh we got to talk about this Flynn sit-down. There's new information about it today, and it shows you the way they're playing the game. To my point about what we're up against, we have to understand what the other side is doing, and we have to keep an eye on it, or else we will get the Flynn treatment, so to speak. The American people will. We'll get ambushed by the other side. Stay with me. I'll give you more in a second. All right, team lines are lit. I-, I will tell you a bit more about the Flynn trap, as I will call it, coming up here in just a few minutes. I think it's very it's very important, and the details are troubling. But you have to understand how the feds play the game, and I do, because I've been there. I'm aware. I know how this goes. I know how it goes when all of a sudden you're the witness in an investigation to you're the subject in an investigation to you are the target of an investigation. And that's something that they can play all kinds of games with. And by the way, it can change in a heartbeat. And when I see what they did to Flynn, I've, I've got a lot on that. you got to stay with me until the next hour. So I want to hear from you first. Let's get Paul in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. What's up, Paul?
0: Good evening, sir. I got to say, I, I love the show. Uh, you're one of the most bright, astute uh, you know, speakers on the radio that I hear on a regular basis, and I love listening to
2: you. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you.
0: Um, so, when I was talking to the uh, call screener, I, one of the things that I had to to say very simply was, um, <laughs> honestly, it's awfully convenient that. Those two were the only two that really had their messages deleted. And I understand that they just recently stated something to the effect of, well, no, there were others. I don't buy it for a second. I don't buy that the messages are even missing. I think they've been hidden by a group of people that don't want them to come out.
2: Well, let me tell I you this. I mean, if, if somebody like- said to me, hey, uh, you, you know, the company you work for, we, we can't get the emails, I would say, all right, I guess we'll talk to the IT guy. I mean, I, I, you know. Who who really knows, right? I mean, that's when you get people think that this would be such a hard. I'm not saying it is a conspiracy, but I'm with you, Paul. This this seems like a very convenient DOJ answer or or FBI answer. This. Oh no, there were thousands of people that whose text messages we can't find. Uh, I don't buy it
0: for a second.
2: How can anyone check? I mean, who's in charge of that? Do you think the IT guy is going to blow the whistle? I don't think so.
0: I, I don't buy it for a second because I can tell you from working in IT that if you're doing backups and they don't work. For the day, you know immediately. There's a record that comes back that states specifically that it didn't work. And if it doesn't back up for five months, somebody needs to be sitting on the street with the street signs saying "We'll work for food."
2: But can we just take a bit? Like Paul, let's. I think that this is a really, and I'm glad to have somebody with a well, background in IT to talk to you about this. Let's think about this for a moment. Oh, okay. Thanks, FBI. It's not that there was a, a political cover up here for just two people. Best case scenario here is the FBI has lost, temporarily at least, but didn't even know that it had lost, thousands and thousands of different devices, information for federal law enforcement officers over the course
0: of five months. That's a big deal. <laughs> that's not like a little thing. So so the easy answer to this, go ask the NSA for it. We know they record them. Uh, yeah, that's,
2: uh, we know that they exist somewhere, right? My only sense of this, Paul, has to be, that maybe that's the answer about the, the thousands, and then they're hoping that that will buy them time while they figure out what the, you know,
0: I don't know. What the next excuse is or what the next yeah. uh, the next uh, distraction or diversion that they can come up with. As I've said to people,
2: I, I, mean, I promise, if, if the FBI was investigating somebody for, you know, a white-collar crime just to do an easy one, uh, mm-hmm. they'll find the records. They, <laughs> they're, they're not going to not find the electronic <laughs> records. They will find them, as you know, Paul.
0: Absolutely. The company I'm working for, we're doing stuff right now in case federal regulators and auditors come in and investigate what we're doing just simply because it's a bank. You know, they do that kind of thing. And so if there's ever anything that's any wrongdoing and they ever investigate it, we have everything documented and everything covered. And we know what every backup is. We know what every last detail of every last piece of it is. And the FBI has much more talented staff on their IT staff than any private corporation i know that all right paul
2: in uh, north carolina thank you so much my friend good to talk to you
0: let's te- uh talk text
2: let's text to that's not gonna be a fun show i'm gonna sit here and text people that are calling in hey i don't know your number but i'm just taking a guess uh stan in gulfport mississippi hey stan
0: hey hey buck and just to follow right along with what the last guy was talking about the first question came to my mind when you mentioned you know thousands of cell phones was okay what company handles all that and number two do they use all those thousands do they use the same kind of phone
2: yeah i don't i don't have answers to this but sure
0: and then the next question was when you said thousands well then you should be able to just go randomly pluck some fbi guy and say let me see your phone let's see what's on it and to see if it's true
2: yeah, I mean, I wonder what the you know, I wish I still I'll be honest with you that my my DOJ FBI contacts are not nearly what what they are in some of the other parts of government, because there's a part of me. I, I hear you, Stan. I kind of want to call if this were some of the other three letter organizations, I could call a buddy and be like, hey, is this true about the unclassified uh, you know emails or, or text messages that you guys are sending around now? I mean, I could get an answer because you're right, Stan, this shouldn't be hard to prove or disprove one way or the other. Thank you for calling in, my friend. We got to run into a break here. I think it's probably true. I mean, look, guys, it's not easy, right? I think it's probably true that there's some glitch and they need to fix the glitch. But if that's the case, what does that say about all this? I mean, that's its own problem. I just want to state that. But bigger issue here is the Flynn trap and what they did to General Flynn. And we're going to juxtapose that. We're going to compare that, how they brought felony charges against a decorated uh, member of the United States military to what they did for Hillary. You want to hear that.
1: He's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton show, everybody. Coming up in this
2: hour, we will talk about the Sanctuary City Showdown that the Trump administration is in the midst of. It is just heating up right now. We will have more on that. Uh, you've got some, some dreamers making their opinion known, and, in, uh, in, well, we'll get to that, too. Um, and if I have time later on in the show, we'll also discuss some follow-up to what's going on in Syria right now. There was actually a readout. Of a call between President Erdogan of Turkey uh, on the list of world leaders that I think needs a good swift kick in the butt, so to speak, uh, and President Trump. So we will get into that, too. Well, they talked about how the Turks are in the midst of a military incursion into Syria bombing people because they say they're PKK. They say they're terrorists. Well, they're not, at least not all of them and maybe none of them, so we will talk about that. Uh, Turkey's got some explaining to do, and uh, I think that we need to start to rethink a bit of our uh, approach with the Turks on some of these issues, especially as it regards uh, the Kurds, who, as I tell you, I am very uh, favorable toward the Kurds, I know some Kurds from in theater and uh, they were always very honorable and have been a very stalwart ally to the United States. The Turks caused a lot of problems. A little too friendly with Hamas, too, but I digress. Okay. Uh, the Flynn trap. We know that General Flynn is, they say, cooperating. I mean, the guy's got no choice, right? This is what the whole purpose of the Mueller probe was from the get-go. Or this is the whole M.O. This is the way they were going to get to... Whatever it is they think. I don't even know what they think they're going to get to. There's nothing there, guys. It's not politics. I know you know this, but it's it's cathartic, right? it. it there's, a, there's a release that you feel from just being able to say it and not have someone say, you know, oh, the president colluded with Russia. This is a threat to democracy, and democracy dies
0: in darkness and blah, blah.
2: By the way, it's another piece out today. I forget in what magazine about how swearing is actually good for you, makes you smarter, and releases stress. I will not swear on the show for obvious reasons. I know there are young young ones listening, too. But when I talk about the Russia collusion, sometimes there is a part of me that wishes I could do like a, a separate addendum to the show where I could just let it rip because I would I would like to because that's how I feel about it. It's gotten to that point where I would like to start throwing around some blankety-blank and blank, but I can't. I know. But that's how I feel about this. It's just gotten... It's been out of control for such a long time, and it's such a frustration. And, uh, look, General Flynn, I remember when he came on my, my uh, radio show with The Blaze, and I was talking about his new book, and I, you know, I, I, never, I never could have ever imagined that here he'd be now uh, pleading guilty to a felony line of the FBI and all this other stuff. But here's what we know that's, that's new, or at least it's confirmed Uh, This is from NBC News. A year ago today, President Donald Trump's newly sworn in national security Advisor Michael Flynn, met privately in his West Wing office with FBI investigators interested in his communications with Russia's ambassador without a lawyer or the knowledge of the president and other top White House officials, according to people familiar with the matter. Flynn's FBI interview on January twenty fourth, twenty seventeen, set in motion. Blah blah blah. All right, you don't. Know, all the rest of that doesn't really affect what I'm about to tell you. Here's the really, and this is why it's in the first sentence. This is the big part of this. Flynn is, is formerly DIA director. I mean, the guy is not new to all this, right? I mean, Flynn is somebody who you would think, uh, you would think, understands the jeopardy of uh, you would think understands the jeopardy of the situation that he was in talking to the FBI okay why would he do it then well you gotta remember he's, he's national security incoming national security advisor just, become, just became the national security advisor he's working with top level people in the government all the time he didn't have a lawyer present the White House didn't know about this the only way, as far as I can see it, the only way that's possible is if the FBI made this seem like it was, was was just very nonchalant and wanted to talk to him about something else. And I will tell you, this is one of the FBI's favorite tricks, everybody. Sorry are a few FBI agents out there because I know that this is one of the ones that they like to do. And look, if they're doing it to, you know, catch a human trafficker or a kidnapper or something, you know, God bless and thank you for what you do. But, you know, it should be used only in certain certain contexts. One of the things I like to do is they'll say, hey, we just want to talk to you about. So we we got to ask you some questions about somebody else that has nothing to do really with you, but you can shed some light on it. And then you don't bring a lawyer. And then you sit down with them and you think that you're just being helpful because you want to be helpful because you're a patriot. This is the FBI. And they go after bad guys. And again, the FBI does go after bad guys. And and I know that, you know, this is like I I feel like I have to interject that all the time here. But I know we have FBI folks that listen to the show and I have friends who are, well, particularly formerly FBI, but I still know some people in the Bureau. And uh, I'm not trying to disparage any of their work or what they do. They do a lot of fantastic stuff and very important part of keeping the country safe We're focusing in, though, on just a little group here, a little cabal in the FBI and their actions and their usage of the tools and powers that they have for partisan purposes. Everybody, that's what this was. So Flynn sits down with them. And they uh, about, I'm sure, something else. Right. And maybe this has come out a little bit before, but now we have more confirmation of it that they misdirected. They sat down with him. He thinks that he's just talking to fellow. Federal, national security folks. But they're actually trying to trip him up. The only reason they know about this, I would notice, because Sally Yates, who is a complete uh, a disgrace and a fraud. She's she's the, the female Comey in all this. I mean, just a complete, grandstanding, preening fraud. But Yates says that she's worried because she... Has access to classified information. She's worried that Flynn can be blackmailed, so she has to inform people. Well, I suppose she needed some pretext for spreading it around even more that Flynn had had this, uh, what was a completely acceptable conversation with Ambassador Kislyak of Russia. But that was her. Oh, he's going to be blackmailed. How that blackmail would work, I would like to know. Uh, you know, turn turn over the turn over the microfilm, or else. We're gonna tell the vice president you lied to him. Uh, I, I don't think anyone's gonna you know commit treason against their country because they may have told a fib to a colleague. That's really what we're talking about here. Until the FBI gets involved, until the DOJ gets involved here with the Flynn conversation with the ambassador, this is a this is an interoff or this is a a intramural White House dispute, right? This is this is Flynn talking to Penn, talking to. It's made much worse because of the FBI's involvement here on a non-issue. Again, they're involving themselves on a non-issue. Sally Yates is, oh, waiting about him being blackmailed. That's crap. Blackmailed how? Doesn't have know, you know, like photos of Flynn in compromising situations or something. It just said he said one thing. Uh, how, oh, the Russians are. Oh, that's that's going to be a great tactic. The Russians with the incoming Trump administration and you know who's. Let's just be honest. Unpredictable, right? They're going to they're gonna throw their weight around and say, yeah, we've got your national sec- We can prove your national security advisor lied to the vice president about a conversation he had that of no importance or relevance whatsoever to anything. It just doesn't make any sense, folks. Remember that Sally Yates, the grandstander who wouldn't do the Trump travel ban, which the Supreme Court has said, actually, it looks like that is constitutional. So Sally Yates, apparently not very good at the law. Sally Yates needs some help on the law. Not not too quick on that one. You know, she's a little... Needs a refresher on what her job was, what her responsibilities were. Uh, but they did this to Flynn, and now he's facing, you know, federal... Uh, he's already pleaded guilty, so it's a question of what happens now. Notice how the instinctual response you'll get from the media on all this is, well... Flynn lied, Flynn's bad guy, all this other stuff. And, and if, you, if you ask them, a, hold on a second. They've got Flynn, they've got Papadopoulos, they've gotten these people on false statements to federal agents' charges. And what we see from the Flynn sit-down in the White House is that they were trying to get that. This was a purpose. This was not a byproduct. This was a purpose that they wanted to. Ha- they wanted this to happen. And they set it up so that it would happen. I mean, otherwise, I don't know. I mean, Flynn, you know, I don't need a lawyer to talk to the FBI when they're going to ask me questions about something that they're trying to nail me on. I don't think he's that out to lunch. I think he knows that that's a bad idea. Look at what happened with Hillary. And this is not what aboutism. This is about standards. This is about ethics. It's about truth. Did they ever, at any point in time, specifically try to deceive Hillary or any of her top people during the investigation of her actual commission of a federal crime, not a non-crime, they're just trying to grab her for a cuz, did any federal agent, did anyone working for the FBI or the DOJ ever seek out a situation, construct a circumstance where it was more likely than not that they would get Hillary or Huma or Cheryl Mills lying to a federal officer the answer is obviously no they went in the opposite direction and i know how the game is played folks i know how this is done i know the difference between sitting down and having a friendly conversation with federal invest. there's all kinds of different federal investing i'm not just talking about fbi there's all office of security for this you know homeland all these other places they've got their internal watchdogs and You can find yourself in the middle of a legally binding and legal jeopardy style proceeding real fast. That difference shows us how corrupt and rotten the system really is. They went after Flynn because they wanted to, because this is score settling, because this is the system striking back at those who are finally standing up to it. They did the exact opposite for Hillary and all of her top people. They made sure it was impossible for them to be caught in a perjury trap. They made sure there was never going to be any problem. You'll notice it. Did you, do you think it would have been hard? Hillary was lying her butt off about the whole email thing for months. You think it was going to be hard to get her if you were a seasoned FBI agent to get her to just say one little one little booboo, one little mistruth to a federal officer? Please. It would have been child's play. I could have done it in about an hour. Maybe thirty minutes. Just get her to say one thing that's untrue in that email investigation. Get you don't think you could have gotten Huma married to child predator Wiener to to, to say something that was. Now I'm not advocating for using perjury trap. I it actually makes me uncomfortable as a general strategy. But look at the difference. Look at what's happened to General Flynn. Look at what has hap- What did happen with Hillary and all of her? Or did not happen. And you're going to tell me, or not you, but they're going to tell me that there's not something here that stinks to high heaven? Come on. The the, the lies and the, the corruption and the malfeasance, it's just getting stacked up so high that sometimes just, like I said, I feel like salty language would be very appropriate. All right, what do you think about all this, friends? We're going to talk about the... Situation with immigration here in just a moment. I just saw a tweet. It's from the president, or it's about the president. It's not from the president. It's about the president. That is, we got to see. I I have, I have some trepidation about it. Concern. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five eight four four nine hundred. Buck. I'll be right back, folks. Barely dreamers, you just heard some there. They're all valedictorians, curing cancer and saving puppies from burning buildings. Everyone, uh, they're out. Well, they're outside of Schumer's house, chanting. I think keeping them up at night too. That's the first thing I've heard dreamers do. That I'm like, yeah, I can, I can kind of, I can get behind that. It's the first protest they've done. I'm like, you know what? It's uh. Irritating Chuck Schumer. I actually do not advocate anybody ever showing up and annoying somebody at their home. I think it's a horrific and disrespectful and childish thing to do. But, hey, the Dreamers, you know, the Democrats, this is this is uh, what they the situation they have created. They have made their bed, Democrats. They should sleep in it, right? Come on. They're showing up at Chuck Schumer's house. He's probably like, I need sleep. Go home. I don't want to talk to you. Schumer. Yeah. So there you go. That was my grumpy Schumer voice. It was close enough. Mike in Wilson, North Carolina. What's up, brother?
4: Mike? Hey, Bucky. Hey, yes, sir. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Uh, I know it's not Friday, but can I hit you with one?
2: <laughs> you want to do an action movie quote on a Wednesday? <laughs> yes. All right, bro. I'm in a good mood. Go ahead.
4: All right. Where is the Meikle film?
2: Oh, man. I don't know. What is that? <laughs>
4: <laughs> Loaded Weapon One, check it out. It's got a Mu Estes and and um, oh god, everybody. I've never
2: even heard, heard. I've never even heard of that movie. So you're, you're you're educating me with a bunch of stuff here, but other folks are listening, Mike, so they want to know what else you got on your mind.
4: All right, um, God, uh, it's from Bill Clinton, and and they they can't take Trump and all that. But it really comes down to, I mean, just um. The stuff that they're they're pulling together against uh, uh, Donald Trump, and you got two people in the FBI. I mean, if, if I would have done that, I'd be in prison. You know, I mean, if me and you would, would have done anything close to that, it, we'd be in prison. Well, and when, when I,
2: you I, look at, I mean, Mike, I just note that when you look at what what can happen in uh, federal investigations, just based on. The uh, destruction of evidence charges, right? Exactly. And and with with Hillary and the servers and all this other stuff, what we're seeing here is that the prosecutorial discretion Uh, is an enormous power, and it has been abused in key ways to benefit the party of the state, which is the Democrat Party. And I mean that in terms of statism, not state like, you know, the 50 states. And that's something that we have to reckon with as a, as a country now, and that's what all patriots who are paying attention have yeah. to look at and say, "Hold hold on a second, what the heck is this
4: all about?" Yeah, I mean, if I can just throw something in really fast, I did a study, um, my own study. Um, they they've destroyed through um, I don't want to get it too deep, but um, through abortion, they've they've destroyed sixty million of their own voters.
1: Um, well, they've they destroyed sixty
2: influence. million human beings, but uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think it even. I mean, the, the who that votes for is is really irrelevant, my friend. But Mike, thank you for, uh, thank you for calling in. Um, hmm. Oh, immigration. Right, that's where we're dreamers, DACA, immigration. Got two big components of this discussion coming up here in a second. Um, one of them is what's going to happen with sanctuary cities. New developments on that that I will be telling you about shortly. Uh, that's that's a big one. And then also what's going to happen with DACA. These are the two issues that are at the forefront on immigration right now, and we've got some updates for you on that. I've got Trump, from what I understand, I, I didn't see this happen when we we're on air, maybe has given us a peek as to what his final proposal will look like on all this. We'll have to see. Um, but I want to take one more call before we get into all that coming up there. John in Anchorage, Alaska. Hey, John.
5: Hey, Bucky. Uh, you really did a good first hour. You should have it chiseled in stone and put on the Wellstone Monument. Thank you, sir. But anyway, as an aside, I've looked into it, and most of the rascals that we're dealing with here uh, with um, a Fusion uh, GPS, the FBI, we're also the same FBI that we're dealing with poor ted stevens and i'm doing a timeline and and what they've been doing is it appears when they're republicans they go to jail when they're democrats they're innocent
2: it's a very but good john I, I i can and thank you for calling on buddy we got to go into a break here in a second Just real quick i want to say this to everybody look at prosecutorial abuse at high levels in the political sphere they went after rick perry they had nothing they went after chris christie they had nothing. They went after Bob McDonald. The Supreme Court had to overturn them. They went after Ted Stevens, prosecutorial misconduct to get a conviction. They went after Scott Walker, Wisconsin. Can any of you off the top of your head do a similar list, even three names that are Democrats that were unfairly targeted by federal level prosecutors or lower? I'm willing to bet the answer is no. I wonder why.
1: Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. Right, we, we fight for the truth in a team effort. Roger, roger. And Buck is back with our next play. All right, here's Buck. Because he promised us time
5: and again and again that he will fix this. And he did it. And we're afraid that in three weeks,
2: the Senator Schumer wants some sleep. Go away. <laughs> They're at his house. They're at his house chanting. Oh, man. You know, those dreamers doing the doing the chants. Americans won't do. There you go. They're just keeping them up late at night. Oh, there you have it. Um, the, the dreamer issue is going to only intensify in the next few weeks because there are, well, let me start with this. You have a tweet out. I'm trying to make sure I have the right. Uh, yes, here you go. It's from the Associated Press. So I, I think that's pretty legit, right? As, as big media goes, as uh, mainstream goes, Associated Press, pretty legit. I know they get stuff wrong sometimes, but breaking Trump says immigration plan will let protections for younger immigrants morph into citizenship in 10 to 12 years. Hmm. Now I need to see if we do we if, do we know if there's any audio of Trump saying this? And nope, nope, doesn't it? Okay, because I want to know what exactly was said here. Everyone, that's gonna be a big. That's that's gonna be yeah yeah. We've got Mike looking for it. If we get the audio, we'll put it up. That's gonna be a big uh, big problem. That's not gonna that's not gonna work you add a few million likely Democrat voters to the rolls. Remember, even apart from what our guess would be based on the demographic trends of what, uh, what political parties certain groups tend to vote for, the Dreamer crew is going to thank the Democrat Party for their newfound legal and perhaps even citizenship status, which means that, yes, indeed... There will, be, there will be a whole lot of votes the Democrat Party. I don't, I don't see how Trump can sign anything as president that is an amnesty without huge ramifications. I worry. I worry, folks. You know, I've been thinking about this recently. Things are going very well right now. Things are going well for the country, well for the economy. How does all of this—what wh- are the pitfalls? What are the traps that the administration could run into? And I think amnesty is the single biggest one because amnesty one is forever. You can't amnesty is not like Obamacare. There's no fix. Once it's done, it's done. There's no going back. There's no we're going to we're going to fix the problem or it's never going to happen. So you have to live with amnesty forever because you're not I've can't imagine how they would get around that. Then they're not going to. So if Trump makes the wrong move here. It's going to result in a fracture within the movement that he spearheaded to become president of the United States. All right, I don't want to get ahead of myself, though. This reminds me of when, what, Chuck and Nancy, remember? They were all like, oh, we have a deal with Trump on this. And then I was like, "Yeah, no, that's not, that's not a deal. Nice, nice try, Chuck and Nancy. There, there's no deal. It's been fun talking to you, though. They're keeping me up late at night. They're so mean, those dreamers. They're chanting, they're, they're yelling things. Schumer's not 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 dreaming about the dreamers. How much I can tell you. Uh, So that's one part of this now. I'm I I'm going to be watching this closely. We don't know. I'm just updating you. We'll see what happens with the negotiation on this. We'll see where all of that goes. But then um, then you have the issue of the wall. Mark Short, White House Director of Legislative Affairs, He's been getting a lot of uh, a lot of airtime lately. Here's what he had to say about the wall negotiations.
0: Well, it seems like negotiating with Leader Schumer is like negotiating with Jello. One day he's for the border wall, the next day he's against it. I think the reality is that we're going to eventually get a deal here, Brett. We do want the four pillars because we don't want to be back in the same place again where we were before. The reality is that we need a physical barrier. We also, though, need an end-to-chain migration and the visa lottery. And we're
3: happy to negotiate on that DACA population.
1: How dare you call me like Jello? Much prefer pudding.
2: Uh, The reality here, I know my Schumer needs work, right? I mean, my Schumer sounds too much like Janice, uh, not Janice, Janet Napolitano, which is very different. I'm I'm turning into, I'm turning Schumer into Big Sis. Hey, hello, Big Sis Napolitano. I don't know how many of you remember, but that was a long time ago. Uh, Schumer is negotiating on these core issues of, immigration reform, whatever you want to call it, you know, whatever we think that this uh, is. And, you know, immigration changes in the law. They have to nail all this stuff down and it has to be, a, I think, up front. And the, the most that Republicans should offer on this in the meantime is it should be delayed. I've been thinking about what what would make me happy. I mean, I'm not in the big chair, but yeah, I'm not the president. I do. A, I do a show. So I get to just think about what would be great and try to push for that idea and see what happens. Well, what I think would be good is if they just did a delay of, or not a delay of, but they, fine. If you get some good stuff, then extend the DACA program. If you get the end-of-chain migration, if you get the wall funded and ready to be built and start building it, and you want to revisit DACA in a year, I say I say there you go. You know, the, sometimes kicking the can down the road, maybe it can actually work for Republicans instead of against them. Or it can be smart tactics instead of just a, a strategy of slow surrender, which is, I think, what you've largely had with Republicans on a whole bunch of issues for a long time. GOP Congress, not exactly, you know, lighting the world on fire with all their accomplishments until recently with tax reform, which was good, but that's about as down-the-middle, straight-up, old-school GOP as you're going to get on any policy issue, right? Tax reform. GOP's always wanted to cut taxes, right? That's nothing new, thankfully, because Trump is the president. It actually happened, and now we see it has a lot of benefits to the country. Look, the GOP's been right on a lot of stuff for a long time. Just because the media and the Democrat Party and all of their various partisans have been able to convince enough of the American people not to go along with the conservative agenda, unfortunately— doesn't mean that it's not right. Tax cuts is a good idea. But the wall has to get built. They have to agree to a wall, and anything else with Chuck Schumer is just nonsense. And here's what you're going to see. They are absolutists on amnesty. They only want amnesty. There's nothing else that they're willing to do. Because here's the the great fear that Democrats have when talking about and negotiating on issues of immigration. The thing that really concerns them is that some of this stuff happens. The government's able, meaning that we get some of the Trump agenda items on immigration, and it works. Ah, look at that. Ah, who knew? Start building a wall. All of a sudden, and and some of you are probably yelling, Buck, they did it in San Diego, and it worked. I know. Trust me, I, I get it, right? I've read this stuff. But that's what they really worry about. If all of a sudden you have an end-to-chain migration. And now we have a, a system in place where people are applying and being evaluated on objective criteria with the explicit intention of benefiting our fellow Americans. You know? They always people always talk about, oh, you know, we need you know healthcare in this country or whatever. You know what would be great? Let's let's bring in a lot of let's bring in a lot of world class pediatricians. Pediatricians, I know, for example, have a very rough time these days just making ends meet. You got to go into specializations and all. You know, I've got some doctor friends. You know, I know some doctors, and you know, just being a GP or a pediatrician is tough, tough. Especially, it's the moment you get outside of a city and you don't have, you know, Zocdoc scheduling appointments for you every fifteen minutes or something. You know, it's really tough to make a living. And you know, let's bring in some. You know, we we need more people to. You get these uh, tech companies that are saying, "Oh, you know, we we can't find any Americans to do these jobs," which by the way, they're usually lying about that. They just want to pay people less to do the jobs and they use H1B visas for that purpose. But I digress. But you know, bring in you know, let's let's bring in some of the best of the best and people who love America, who really want to be here. Actually, I actually had a I had a pretty fun little exchange uh just what was it a couple of days uh yesterday. Um I was Walking outside of, I guess it happened in a public place, so I, I feel like I don't need permission to share the story. I was walking outside of Fox with uh, Michael Malice, who I do the, um, I do the uh, Kennedy panel with. Uh, well, I'm on Kennedy when he's usually on the panel. I'm usually just uh, in a separate segment, but and and he's a he's a very interesting guy. You know, I I think he's got a he's a very sharp guy. He's very witty, very amusing, and and I like him. He's a good dude. We're walking, we're just talking about media biz and whatnot, and this gentleman walks by and he's all of, and he's a former Soviet. And I can tell him he goes, I love what you're doing on the Fox News. You're fantastic. I love it. It's great. You know, he starts going to this whole thing and he's yelling at us or whatever. And he doesn't realize that Michael is also from a uh, former Soviet Union. And all of a sudden, you know, they're going back and they're going back and forth like in Ukrainian. And I'm sitting there like, oh well, I feel kind of left out now. And you got this guy, he sees us on the street, and he's like, i just love this, don't stop. They don't understand, they don't know, you know, what will happen if you know if you don't fight for your freedom. And I'm like, This guy's a patriot. This guy loves this country. He loves that we're trying to spread the the, the word about, you know, don't become a socialist, don't do all this. And I'm like, Yeah. You know, legal immigrant, everybody. Loves America, loves loves Fox News, loves what I'm saying on Fox News. I'm like, this guy, first of all, I was like, obviously should be listening to the Buck Sexton show. I didn't get a chance to pitch him. But the point is, this guy's got Team Buck written all over him. But well, the point is, that's what we want. we want. We want that. We want those guys and gals, of course. You know what I mean? We want those people who, who love it here, who appreciate it here, who want to be here, and who contribute right away, who are bringing stuff to the table. Because... A lot of people would like just to show up and get free stuff. And, and if you can come legally and just get free stuff, a lot of folks are going to want to do that. We want skills and we want love of America. That, those are those two things. Top of the list. That happens, though. We see more of that happening. Demo- what happens with Democrats? Oh, my gosh. you know. And then then where are they? You know, they, they Democrats need to import a, a much greater percentage of immigrants who are going to have a dependency on the federal government. That's their preference. Of course, they're the party of the state. The more the more on federal assistance, the more that need more assistance. And I don't just mean welfare. I mean across the board. English as a second language in schools, all this stuff. The better. The better. It was really a really nice moment yesterday with this guy. It was just, it's just great. I mean, I walk around New York City. I, one of the reasons I like to go to other parts of the country is because there's, you know, in other states, people actually, and I can say this because I'm a born and raised New Yorker, but like in other parts of the country, there are more people who just like America and I'm exposed to them, so that's nice. And also, they're more likely to be familiar with my work, which is also, that's why whenever I see somebody who's Team Buck, it's like, oh, great, it's really nice. Because in New York, yeah, you know, I walk around, you know, my little, my little uh, you know, wool hat pulled out over my eyes. Nobody has any of the am around here, which is fine with me, but I'm just saying, it's nice when I get to see folks from the team, and, and I mean the team even beyond Team Buck. I just mean folks that like, lo- love America and, and have a similar worldview to me. Isn't it a beautiful thing? I can show up. I can be in, you know, I can be in Texas. I could be in central Michigan. I could be in all places I've been traveling. i down in, in Louisiana, places I've been in, in recent months and years, and talk to some folks. And I just know, I'm like, yeah, it's funny. We're from very different places in terms of the, you know, the day-to-day and the culture. And yet we agree on like 90, 95% of what's real, what's important, and what's true. It's kind of fun, isn't it? All right, I got to roll into a quick break. I'll be right back.
3: The
1: Department of Justice today has announced a critical legal step to hold accountable sanctuary cities that violate federal law and free criminal aliens back into our communities. We can't have that. My administration is committed to protecting innocent Americans. And the mayors who choose to boycott this event have put the needs of criminal illegal immigrants over law abiding Americans.
2: So here's the situation, folks. That was obviously your president. Here's the situation: the Justice Department is now the Sessions-led DOJ, and look, Sessions is very good on the topic of immigration. It's one of the, I think that gets lost here. He's gotten caught up in the street fight over Russia collusion, but Session Sessions on immigration, I trust him a lot more than a lot of other Republicans, and he knows a lot more than a lot of other Republicans. You know who else is awesome in immigration, by the way? Just putting it out there: uh, Mo Brooks. Well, Brooks gets it gets it done on immigration too but here's the problem that the administration is trying to handle you got all these different sanctuary jurisdictions and it's something like a few hundred across the country in total and then you get a people there's a lot of uh pseudo pseudo sophistication on this issue from some of the pundit class they're like hey well you know it's a sanctuary city what does that even mean well yeah it's it's an imprecise term because it varies depending on the jurisdiction. But generally, it means that local law enforcement is under obligation, in some cases under legal obligation based on state law like California, not to in any way help or enforce immigration law. And and when I mean help, I don't mean like they're not going to go kick in the door. You know, you got the ICE guys on one side and LAPD on the other, You know, ready to ready to kick in the doors. I mean, they won't even tell the federal government, hey, we've got somebody in custody that you want to deport, which, by the way, can include people with criminal past. Right. They won't do that. We saw with uh, the shooter of Kate Steinle, he's deported six times, seven times. How many times was it six or seven times? I think I can't even remember that. It was five or more. More than one seems crazy to me. It was, I think, it was six or seven times. So, jurisdictions like San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Florida's actually a little gotten a little bit uh, more. Miami, specifically, has gotten a little more cooperative on this issue. If memory serves in the last year or so. But all these other sanctuary jurisdictions don't want to share information. And here is what the DOJ is saying: Look, we're going to start subpoenaing records here to find out about what you're doing on your sanctuary city. What what are your actual law enforcement policies when it comes to illegal aliens in custody? What are you told to do? Because they've codified it now. So how is that manifesting itself in states like California, states like New York and, and others? What are law enforcement? And by the way, I don't, I don't blame my former colleagues at the NYPD at all for, you know, they are operating under instructions from their bosses. You know, the NYPD answers to the police commissioner, answers to the mayor. So de Blasio, who's one of the clowns, and he is, I mean, of, on the clown ship, de Blasio is like, he's like the honk-honk captain. He's like, honk-honk, he is the worst I mean, he's among the very worst. I, the fact that the, the fact that de Blasio can be a mayor. Remember, he I think he ran Hillary Clinton's Senate campaign back in like 2000. So he used to be in tight with the Clintons and then he fell out of favor with them. But the fact that de Blasio can run New York City and the city has not yet burned down is actually just a testament to the, the resilience and the honestly tremendous concentration of, of wealth and prosperity that he inherited here in New York City. I mean, it hasn't gotten better with de Blasio, but it hasn't gotten a lot a, you know, that much worse, even though he's just he is. Boy, he is major nincompoop, sir. Yes, sir. Major nincompoop reporting for duty. I mean, he is. Uh, but he, he's one of these people who will do anything for the illegal immigrant population. He, illegal aliens, top of the list, top priority. And now you're going to get into this fight with the federal government over what's going to happen with the illegal alien populations in these different cities and different states. And this there is something that's going to be exposed here. And here's how that goes. What we're going to see is that cities and states are pro-lawlessness
1: holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. They're clear. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief.
2: Deadly attacks in Afghanistan. We should know who the enemy is. Uh, we should know what we are fighting when we talk about jihadists around the world, and while I think that the news media is so focused on other issues right now, it doesn't mean that we have to fall into the same, uh, into the same cycle as the rest of them. And I think it's worth pointing out what happened here in Afghanistan because I want us all to know the enemy because they're still out there, they are still fighting, they are working to hit us. And the Trump administration has managed tremendous success against the Islamic State, but that does not mean that there will not there will be another ISIS. You can you can count on it. I assure you, there will ISIS still exists. There are still affiliate organizations of the Islamic State around the world. But another one of these jihadist terrorist organizations will rise up, will seize territory, and will become a factory for suicide bombers. Uh, a a an entity that engages in mass slaughter and mass rape and the enslavement of children, it will happen again. Under the banners of Islam, under the banners of the Islamic State, it will happen. It's just a question of when and how soon, and I think it'll be sooner than many people could realize right now based on some trends in parts of the world that we will continue to follow here on the show. The war in Afghanistan is not going well. The Trump administration is improving upon what was done by its predecessor, that's for sure. But we started this war in 2001, and now we are in 2018. And I have heard many of the strategies and discussions stretching back for a long time on this. As I've told you before, I spent a a considerable period of time in Afghanistan, and I, I think that this is a problem that needs much more attention than it's getting. And one of the issues that I see is that we are being led to believe, oh, the Taliban, they're going to have to be part of a negotiated settlement. And this is also part of a rising sentiment right now. And I understand where this comes from, but the sense that we can't fix the world's problems, and we can't. We can't intervene in all these places and make their countries functional and and just much better, also true. But we should make no mistake about the evils that exist in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And I do reject the notion that even some libertarians and non interventionist conservatives will attach themselves to it in one way or another that these are somehow creations of or, or responses to U.S. foreign policy. These entities, these groups, these uh, ISIS the Taliban that this is somehow still a reaction to what we've been doing the truth is that these evil entities would be around even without us there and in the knowing the enemy category let me just take you through what just happened in Afghanistan so whenever you hear someone talk about how we need a we need a political solution with the Taliban remember remember what I'm telling you right now and now the Taliban hasn't claimed credit Terrible word to use, but they haven't claimed that this is their attack. It very likely is. It could be the Islamic State, but the Islamic State in Afghanistan is, is a. It could be considered a splinter faction of the Taliban. I mean, the ideology is the same. The Taliban and Al Qaeda were symbiotic organisms pre 9 11. I mean, it's not. Let's not get too hung up on the terrorist org chart here. Likely, a Taliban attack, and this is what happened and it just happened in the last twenty four hours or so. They attacked a charity in Jalalabad. Uh, Jabad is a city right on the right near the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan and it's actually a surprisingly beautiful part of the world. There's all these rivers that cut through the valleys and the mountains and it's it's pretty incredible when you when you see it um, but there's still a tremendous amount of violence in the area. It's close to the PAC border. and Anything that's close to the PAC border is always a hot spot for Taliban and also Haqqani activity, as well as now the Islamic State. Whichever jihadist group it was, I'm going to assume it was the Taliban, but keep in mind that it could— you might see a report tomorrow that it was the Islamic State, and that doesn't make all that much difference for our purposes here. It's just a reminder of what we're up against. And what we what we would be leaving behind if we do decide to just say forget it at this point, meaning that we're not going to be able to make Afghanistan into what we were hoping to. They attacked the UK Save the Children charity. All right. The the Taliban or whomever it was. Went after a charity that 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 exists. The name is literally Save the Children. And they set off a suicide bomber and laid siege to the building And it it was an attack on a charitable organization. And this isn't the only time that they have done things like this. I mean, in this case, because they're actually literally attacking a group called Save the Children, it seems particularly horrific. Um, But they've attacked the Swedish NGO Operation Mercy. They've attacked uh, a Finnish charity that was a, a Christian charity with Finnish people uh, working to help this is these are literally ngos that are trying to provide medicine food just help the Afghan people but the nihilism and the sadism of jihadists is such that th- that they want to kill those who want to ease the suffering of others without political agenda without anything else j- just trying to help heal the sick and and clothe and feed the needy and the desperate and that's what we're up against with the Taliban. That's, that's who U.S. troops have been fighting against, and that's who U.S. troops have been training allies on the ground, Afghan allies, to be fighting against. This is not a, this is not a war where you know, we both have ideas of what the future should look like and you know, may the best side win. This is good versus evil. And I think some of that is being lost, especially in Afghanistan and the discussions about how there may be a future where the Taliban is... Taliban is an evil entity. All right? People that are a part of it are, are our enemy ideologically and on the battlefield. But there is no solution that includes them. That, that, that can't be a part of this. And it just reminds me of other discussions I've seen. And, and recently uh, I've been reading some and, and hearing about some of the criticisms of Trump foreign policy in in Iraq, they're saying, well, he was supposed to be non-interventionist and he hasn't, he's had a more traditional GOP style foreign policy than some expected him to. Remember that we are fighting against enemies here in Iraq and Afghanistan, particularly as well as other places in the world who have absolutely no baseline of decency whatsoever. They will attack a chair, they will systematically and intentionally attack a charity for children. And kill people who want to just help children, the children of Afghanistan. In the case of the Islamic State, which the Trump administration has done a very, uh, very good job of accelerating the programs against them and actually making a, a real effort to eradicate them, not just hold them in check, not keep them from holding more territory to actually take them out. I think there was also a, ma- there was a major airstrike in Afghanistan. Look, I know that Trump team is trying in Afghanistan, but they've, they've, inher- they've inherited a deteriorating situation there. In the case of Iraq, I don't think nearly enough people in this country, and I know we have many, many veterans, and thank you, by the way, for your service and, and all that you've done for and do for this country, but I don't think nearly enough Americans realize that for a while one of the preferred tactics of al-Qaeda in Iraq which is this, What ISIS became was to find uh, people, including children, uh, with Down syndrome, and strap suicide vests to them that were remote detonated. That's what that is what we are up against, everyone. That is what the other side and they don't. It's not repudiated by them. It's not that was a one time thing. That was a tactic they were using. You know, even just saying it, I kind of want to grab an M4 and get out there and start taking out the bad guys myself right now. I mean, it's so horrific that it 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 is painful to even think about the truth of what has happened in these places. But that is what the enemy will do, has done, and believes in in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. We, we are not... Uh, Dealing with an enemy that has political aims that differ from ours that we can you know reasonably disagree on here and there and how do we find ourselves? It is a good versus evil conflict. I think that is being lost. And I believe that the attack on the Save the Children Charity in Afghanistan is yet another reminder that we are fighting against the the jihadists. Their their worldview is such, their view of themselves is such that nothing is too depraved for them, nothing is below them, they will do anything. To kill, to maim, to murder, and to destroy. And while I don't think that we can solve this problem everywhere, and I'm not even sure there's anything left for us to do in terms of defeating them uh, fully in Afghanistan, I don't know what the, I don't know what the pathway to that would even look like at this point. I don't know. I'm saying I don't know. I I wish I had a, an answer. Uh, but we cannot forget what the other side is really like. Um, all right. I, I, I know that was a little we we're going to have professor. I know that was a bit intense, but I think it's important. Uh, we have Professor Peterson uh, joining us here in just a few minutes in studio. Uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson. If You're not familiar with his work. Uh, he's got it. I think something like 30 million plus views on YouTube. And he just takes a he's kind of a public intellectual, a philosopher, a obviously a professor, an author, And he's trying to address, and not not to do it necessarily as a conservative, he's a believing, uh, I believe he's a devout Christian, uh, but he's approaching some of the major ethical and philosophical and cultural debates going on right now from the perspective of we need to find what is true and defend it and not back down from it and speak honestly about it. We need to establish what the truth is and we need to defend it. We can't just have this... Rolling, well, you know, whatever makes people feel good and whatever's going to keep the peace. And that's got to go. And there's also an important role in telling people things that they don't want to hear, but that are true about themselves, about society, about morality. These are not, I know for many of you listening, like, this is not, that sounds like pretty straightforward stuff. I know it is, but the straightforward has become revolutionary. That's what's really profound. That's what's happening now in society all around us, and it's one of the, you could say, organizing principles of what I try to do on this show. The straightforward is now revolutionary. Honesty is an act of defiance in the current political and cultural debates, and Professor Peterson is somebody who is right there on the front lines making that case and fighting on it. I I think he does great work, and uh, he'll be joining us. We'll keep him for uh, a bit coming up here. 844-900-2825. You want to call in, 844-900-BUCK. We'll be right back. John in Minneapolis, you've been patiently waiting, sir. What's up?
0: Oh, hi, Bob. Hold on, <laughs> sorry.
2: Hey, are we inter- are we interrupting dinner, John? Are you all right?
5: No, yeah, I'm fine. Thanks. All right, good. <laughs> hey, um, I just have a, uh, a couple of points here. When uh, you're, when we have this uh, uh, thing going on, where Trump's talking about not fearing going and talking to uh, Mueller under oath. I don't know why he has to say that. I, I think it would be good for him to say, Hey, I'd like the Hillary Clinton treatment. You know, maybe uh a private conversation, not under oath, not recorded. You know, maybe even maybe even with uh, Agent Strzok.
2: Yeah, I, I like, understand what you're saying here. I mean but we all know he won't get that treatment, right? We know no, that I Mueller know. The make- is not gonna pull a comey for Hillary. Exactly. Very different.
5: That- Thank you for appreciating my uh, sarcasm.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I am it. I'm just saying, you know, that's, unfortunately, you're correct, but, but here we are, right? There's right. The, the double standard that I've been talking about for most of the show is very real, and that's why people are, are sick of all this nonsense, because there's an understanding. Right. I'm sorry?
5: And I suppose there'd be, uh, you know, no use in having Melania have a private conversation with Mueller, like uh, Bill Clinton had with the, the Attorney General uh, Loretta Lynch.
2: Yeah, I think. Look, another another worthwhile point here, which is, and thank you for calling in, John. Thank you for holding. You know, we we've seen we've seen so much obvious corruption and malfeasance at the DOJ already, and yet you get these people who are like Trump is undermining the Department of Justice. I think the Department of Justice has done a very good job undermining itself. I think the Department of Justice has, at the top levels, shown us. That it is now a partisan instrument, and that should be, for all of us, very, very troubling. There is nothing about that that we can sweep aside or under the rug and hope will just go away. You know, hope that for another day uh, there will be a a way to fix it or something. Right? That's that's a big, big issue. So I I think that uh, Trump. Gosh, I hope he doesn't sit down and talk to Mueller. I mean, If he does, I'll have a lawyer present. and I'm <laughs> can you imagine let's just take a moment, and we've got Professor Peterson here coming up with us in just a second, so that'll be a really really interesting conversation. And I would encourage you all to check out his work, especially on YouTube. He's got a whole bunch of lectures there uh, that, that are worth, that you'll be like, "Oh wow, this is really interesting." Uh, imagine for a second if Mueller sits down with Trump? and he and they do this whole thing. and at some point Trump says, you know, I did say this or I didn't say this or there's just a discrepancy there's a problem. Think about what the response would be from half of the American electorate when and on the in the very unlikely scenario that there there was even a hint of yeah, now they're going to now they're going to criminally prosecute the president for uh, for lying lying to uh, federal agents federal officers i, I mean the country No, i know that this probably i'm not even sure this really could happen i don't even know the specific i don't think it really but maybe you start to get in this thing of people speak very definitively about this and then what what can happen is what does happen you know what i mean that's that's what the truth is of a lot of these circumstances Uh, you know, you think, well, that will never be the case until it is. And then all of a sudden you're saying, but what about the Constitution? It's like, well, they're already pressing charges. So and then and then you hope the courts sort this out. But the I'm somebody that's not not one for protests and and getting out there in the street and everything. But I actually walked through a very rowdy union protest on my way to work today. You know, what's with the union guys they were, you know, they were outside of a building here in Midtown and they're, like, there was a huge, they had PA system and just cursing and potty language and, cur- and scramble. Like those kids, guys, come on. You know, if you want to be like local, whatever, local iron workers, 227 or something, that's fine. Do your protest, but, you know, no need to be dropping, dropping, uh. The kind of bombs they were dropping, I'll tell you that. It was a little bit, I I was, there was a part of me that was like, excuse me, sir, clean up your language. Clean up your language, Mr. Union Man. This is appalling. But anyway, i if they were to press charges against Trump, the backlash, I, I can't even describe to you. It'd actually be kind of an interesting project to try to think about what the, it would just, we'd go bonkers. Go completely bonkers. This whole thing is just such a setup. It's such a scam. It's so dishonest. It's so wrong. And it's so obvious too to you, to me, to what's going on here. That on the one hand there's and I shouldn't say this, but I I can't help. On the one there's almost a part of me that kind of wants them to try just because then it will be it will be on. I mean, then it's like, all right, gloves off. Now we get to I, I don't know what that even means for the country. I'm just I'm surmising here. I'm theorizing. Uh, There is a part of me that just for the purposes of seeing what comes next would like to imagine what the country is going to be like when we wake up. And they go, yeah, we're going to we're going to prosecute the commander in chief, who is a a, really a revolutionary figure in American politics right now. We're going to prosecute him for like because, you know, he said that he said something to Mueller that Mueller says he didn't say that or whatever. You (sighs) know, it would get wild. Friends, I'd be I'd be out there with placards, probably with salty language like the union guys too. Uh, we got Professor Jordan Peterson joining us to talk about his uh, twelve rules for life. I think you'll really find this a uh, very interesting subject matter. I've been reading the book at home, and it's great stuff. And it's good to see somebody who's actually contributing to the intellectual conservative discourse. <laughs> All right, everyone, a special treat today in the Freedom Hut. We have Dr. Jordan Peterson here with us. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, clinical psychologist, public speaker, and a creator of self-authoring. His latest book is 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos, just released actually this month. Uh, Dr. Peterson, great to have you. Thank you for coming in studio. Thanks for the invitation. Talk to me a bit about 12 Rules for Life.
3: Well, I've written it over the last five years. Uh, It was published just yesterday. It seems to be doing quite well. It was a big hit in the UK. I was there this week. It released there a week ago. Uh, I spoke to a lot of people in London, about 2,300 people, I guess, in different venues, and people seem to be finding the sorts of things that I'm talking about extremely useful.
2: Now, you actually have rules, uh, which for those who are wondering, it's not 12 rules for life and then we get into a complicated thesis about other things that have nothing to do with rules. There are actually 12 rules stated in the book. So I wanted to run at least a few of them by you uh, by you here for everybody to get a sense of where you're taking us. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. That's rule number one.
3: What do you mean and why? Well, that's kind of a comical one. I write it oddly enough about lobsters in that and and other animals as well, but Trying to make a case that um, we've been sizing each other up for a very, very long period of time, so over evolutionary spans of time, and the way that you present yourself to the world determines in large part how pe- not only how people treat you, but how your own nervous system reacts. So if you if you crouch and and act defensive and put your shoulders down and hunch, you're likely to be feel more emotional pain, be more depressed and and anxious, and people will also be much more likely to uh, treat you badly and not to take you seriously. So there's some real utility in straightening yourself up and putting your shoulders back and sort of moving forthrightly in the world.
2: Now, I know some of your more watched, should we say, videos, exchanges, interviews have included your uh, analysis of uh, postmodernist feminism. Is yeah. that the appropriate term? Sure. And, and it just reminds me, as you're talking about this, of some of my own uh, experiences around postmodernist feminism. I went to Amherst College, which was near a couple of women's colleges, one in particular, Smith College, where there was an attitude of being, and this was, this was promulgated through explicit propaganda on the campus, of being militantly unattractive. And I don't mean mm. to not just be sexualized by men. I mean take zero care in your appearance because you don't have to because you refuse to conform to the world's rules. And I always felt like that was a a very damaging message to be putting out to young women or young men, but yeah, this was at well, an all-women's college. And it, to me, seemed to be a, a manifestation of this post-modernist feminism, that this was a way of rebelling against the world meant uh, dress and present yourself as though you don't, again, explicitly, you don't care what people think.
3: Well, there's also some argument there that the way that people size you up is somehow arbitrary and that those rules could be different than they are. The reason that I trace back the evolution, let's say, of proper posture and its signaling so far back in time is to make a case that the way that people judge you isn't, at least in terms of how you present yourself, isn't, isn't all arbitrary social construction. There's deep reasons for it. And so like all animals size each other up and we do the same thing. It's not an arbitrary patriarchal social construct. And in fact, the circuits in your brain, let's say that analyze the way that you present yourself and the way that other people present themselves are unbelievably old and they regulate your emotions and you can't ignore you ignore all that at your peril and that that's the point you're making with regards to this militant militant unattractiveness it's not helpful if you if you make yourself unattractive in other people's eyes even if you're doing it as a as a sign of rebellion there's a very high probability that you'll also make yourself unattractive and contemptible in your own eyes and you'll end up anxious and depressed and nihilistic and bitter and cynical and irritated and unproductive and all of those things that just aren't good.
2: I saw a lot of that happening. There was a a correlation between these things. I I wanted to get to, we won't be able to get through all of the 12 rules, and that's a good thing because then people have to buy the book. But um, not that I'm doing these in order, but rule number two struck me as among the uh, obviously most helpful and important to everyone listening. Treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a meditation on the fact that People are often extremely hard on themselves, you know. I mean, life is hard, and we all fall short of the ideal in many ways, and we're all capable of doing terrible things, and we know very well about ourselves, the terrible things we've done and our own weaknesses, and because of that, we don't often treat ourselves with proper care. And I don't mean to be easy on yourself. I I don't mean that at all, and I don't mean to put yourself ahead of other people. I mean that you should treat yourself like you have some dignity in the world and some utility and to try to conceive of a future that would be good for you in, a, in every possible way, and not least because other people also depend on you. You know you have to take your place properly in the world and and stand up for 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 what you believe in and what you want and that's, and, and you should you should allow yourself the respect due someone that you would care minimally for at least. And so that's what that chapter is about. To, to extend to yourself a friendly hand, that's a good way of thinking about it.
2: So much of what I've seen in, in the rules, and I can tell you, I actually don't have the book with me in studio because I have it at home because I'm actually reading it. Uh, so it was sent here in studio, and I took it home with me earlier in the week, and I'm in the in the midst of making my way through it uh, because I'm familiar with your, your work before the book, as I think many of the listeners are. I know we've had you on the show once or twice yep. before, too. Um, but you are— Best known, I think, well, maybe that's too fine a way to put it, but you are well known among the better known uh, in, uh, instances or incidents in your career had to do with refusal to use pronouns that do not correspond to biological gender. What I think is interesting is that your book is positive uh, is positive and constructive, and yet it, by the academy's terminology and the way that you're treated by—and you are an academic, but the way you're treated by academics, it's as though— You are being deconstructive or you're being unfair to people. Yeah, well, people
3: jump, you know, in the polarized political situation that we're in right now, if you're in opposition, if you stand in opposition to the radical left, then you're often tarred with epithets that are associated with the radical right. You
2: you can imagine what it's like doing this show in terms of some of the emails that I get. Yeah, yeah, exactly,
3: exactly. And so um, I stood up against a bill in Canada, a piece of legislation, that allowed the government to mandate what you had to say. And I didn't care whether it was about transgender rights or about anything else. It wouldn't have mattered what it was about. I think the idea that the government can mandate the language that you have to use under any circumstances whatsoever is reprehensible. In fact, in the United States, the Supreme Court decided that that contravened the First Amendment, in, I think, in 1942. The same principles apply in Canada. Now, when I stood up against the bill, people assumed that— or you know, uh, called me names. And like, this
2: was a bill that would have criminalized misgendering, right? That's what the... Did he, criminalize did, it. I mean, did, it has yeah, passed, did
3: yes. And it's had it's had very negative effects. There was a huge scandal in Canada recently. So you've got to call
2: a man a woman everybody or a woman a man or else you can actually have state sanctions against them. Well,
3: him. and I wasn't even objecting to that so much as I was objecting to the use of these more, I would call them leftist manufactured terms like Z and Xur, which I don't regard as having anything to do with transgender rights. I think they're an attempt by the radical left to grab to 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 dominate the linguistic territory that the political arguments are. I didn't know Canada was that crazy. I assumed this was just a transgender
2: issue. I didn't know that they were at the I think Harvard has the twenty seven genders. So Mm -hmm. this was the the Baskin Robbins flavor approach to gender mandated by law in
3: Canada. It is now mandated by law. That's right. Yeah. Uh,
2: Yeah. But what made me think of this is that you, your book, and as as I've said, I'm, I have not finished it yet, but I'm making my way through it, and I've certainly familiarized myself with the rules, which I think in many ways speak for themselves, um, or at least the audience can get a sense of where it's all going in the chapters. But it seems to me that you're contending with, or in the work that you do, and I would offer that in a very different, or not very different, but in a different way I come across this doing a radio show, too, that the truth is now offensive, and that that can truth be it's a always, truth, truth is truth always is offensive.
3: offensive. Of course it is, because... I mean, the things that you have to communicate to people when you have to communicate are often difficult. We don't sit around and talk about everything that we agree on. I don't sit here and talk to you about the fact that the floor is flat. It's obvious that it's flat. It's the only thing that we need to communicate about are the things that we disagree about, and the probability that that we're going to do that without upset and conflict is zero. But it's better to talk it out than to fail to make peace. It's better to talk it out than to fight. And people think that we can have discussions without anyone getting upset. That's absolutely ridiculous. And, I mean, you think people who think that have never had a relationship. I mean, do you know anyone that you've ever had a serious relationship with that you haven't had disagreements with? And how could it be otherwise? Life is difficult. There's hard things to contend with. And there's no difference between thinking and conflict. So it's it's absolutely it's preposterous is what it is. And... Um, It has nothing to do with making the world a better place, as far as I'm concerned. It's a way to avoid conflict and to exercise power, essentially.
2: We're speaking to Dr. Jordan Peterson, author of 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. We're actually going to keep him through the break and talk to him a little bit more about the book. We'll get into some more rules in just a minute here, team, so uh, stay right there. All right, everybody, welcome back. We have in studio with us here in New York City Dr. Jordan Peterson, all the way from Toronto. Uh, hopefully the flight was was pleasant. Uh, he's down here in New York. He's talking to us about his new book, Twelve Rules for Life: An Antidote to Chaos, which has just been released this week. And uh, we're talking about some of those rules. Well, we're talking about a lot a lot of things actually. And uh, why is it that the uh, the left, when it comes to a book like this, they're going to get upset about it, right? But among your academic peers, for example, can't they look at this and think to themselves? You know, maybe he is trying to at least open an open a dialogue. I mean, there, there are certain terms that the Academy uses all the time. Well, dialogue. Would, and, and, yep. and yet you here are clearly trying to do that. You're not shaming anybody. You're not, you know, uh, dead naming anybody. You're not doing any of this stuff that gets the left really upset these days uh, in terms of of that, in terms of attacking people. And that gets them into some kind of a fury Uh is this is it opening a dialogue with some people on the left in academia for you? Are you seeing the the cracks or is that not happening yet?
3: Um that's that's a difficult question. I think like there's in my discipline in psychology, like psychology hasn't fallen prey entirely to the blandishments of the radical left. It's more the humanities. There's a small, noisy minority in the universities with whom you can't have a dialogue. There's no talking to them at all. Um th- there hasn't been any real attacks, I would say, so far on the content of my book. There's attacks on on the radical left's delusions about what they think I'm saying. You know, I rarely encounter anyone who's willing to discuss the ideas that I've actually brought forward. I don't know if things are getting any better at the universities. There's not much evidence for that in Canada. Um, it sounds quite like the things contrary, are getting worse, I it's worse than well, I
2: thought with the law about gendering. I had no yeah, idea Yeah, well, the
3: problem happened. is is that in many of these disciplines, and that would especially, again, especially be the the, the humanities, is that almost every single person in them now is left wing and, and many radically left, one in five, you know, um, self-identified Marxists, for example, and as has been pretty well documented by people like Jonathan Haidt at, at New York University. And I don't think it is getting better because those people are mostly young and they're mostly tenured. And so they'll be there for the next three decades or four decades. And I can't see any real way out of that except for students and their parents to, to become educated about what's happening in the universities and stop Taking courses that are associated with the radical disciplines—they're identifiable. They talk about diversity, equity, inclusivity, gender, white privilege, systemic racism. If you hear any of those words, especially if they're in a clump, then you know that the the people who are putting the people who are using that set of terminology are people who are possessed by this neo-Marxist postmodernist ideology, and they're not educators; they're indoctrinators. So. Going back testimony, even.
2: Going back to uh, some of your, the rules from yep. Dr. Peterson's book, 12 Rules. I'm, I'm jumping around Dr. Peterson because there's a, a lot that I'd like to talk to him about, but I want to get back to the, the primary purpose of our discussion here, which is his book that's just out this week. Uh, picking among my favorite of the rules, do not let your children—I don't have any kids yet, but I, I thought this one was going to mm-hmm. get a lot of attention. Do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that.
3: Well, the first thing you have to recognize if you're a parent is that it's actually possible to dislike your children. And, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist and I've seen the results of people disliking their children in in the most brutal ways that you can possibly imagine. Think, well, everyone loves their children. It's like, well, yeah, possibly. And perhaps not as well, but certainly not everyone likes them. And that's certainly the case as the relationships extend over time. Like little kids will push you. And they can push you hard, especially if the little kids are more aggressive. Like, I love little kids and there. I think they're great, but they will definitely push you because they want to find out how the world works. And if you allow them to trample all over you and to walk all over you and to not follow any reasonable rules and to not act responsibly as they grow up and to not help in the household and so on, then you won't like them and then you won't treat them well and you won't help them learn how to be the sorts of people that other people like. Like, what you want to do for your child by the time they're age four is you want to help them develop into the sort of child that will listen to adults, so adults will pay attention and smile at them, and that know how to play and behave properly so that other kids will make friends with them. And then wherever your child goes, they see adults that are happy to see them, and they encounter children who want to play with them and interact with them, and you open up the whole world to your child by doing that. And all you have to do is be a bit honest with yourself, and when your child is doing things that you find annoying and irritating, and maybe you talk it over with your spouse or someone that you care about, you know, to make sure it's not you. And then you impose some simple rules and, 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 and the disciplinary structures necessary to make peace in your house. Then you'll like your kids and you can get along fine and everyone else will like them too. It's a hell of a good deal for everybody.
2: Tell me about rule number seven. Pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. Sounds like a virtue versus happiness situation
3: well people often craft their language for example and their actions to to get some to obtain some narrow thing that they're focused on and so they you know maybe i could come into this interview and i could think uh, i want to make sure that i talk properly so that i sell a lot of books and that would i would say that's expedient it's like i've set the goal i'm going to manipulate the conversation to obtain my end sounds like you work in media yeah well but <laughs> i don't no, want I'm, I'm do, right, to well i mean it but I don't want to do that in a conversation. I want to come in here and have a conversation with you, and if one of the consequences are people become aware of my book, well, that's great, but that isn't what I'm aiming for. What I'm aiming for is a a meaningful engaging conversation, and I think that you can aim at that in almost everything that you do a sense of meaningful engagement and there isn't anything better than that and so and you you can watch yourself from week to week, you can see when you're engaged in something meaningful and And deep, and when you're not, and you can practice staying more often in those places that are meaningful and engaging. And the advantage to that is too. So people pursue happiness, and they think they should, and they think they should be happy. But lots of times in your life, you're not going to be happy because bad things are going to be happening around you. But if you've oriented your life so that you're trying to do the things that are meaningful, that even when you're suffering, then you can think, well, you know, yeah, this is rough, and things are terrible around me, but I'm still doing something that's worthwhile. That can sustain you through real trouble. And a lot of the book, a lot of 12 Rules for Life, is about what will sustain you through trouble. And it isn't happiness. Because, you know, when, when, you're, when, you're, when your father has Alzheimer's, when, you're, when your wife is ill, when you have a sick child, you're not going to be happy. You need, and you need something more than ever under those circumstances to keep you afloat and to, and to help you not become bitter and hopeless. So a huge part of the book is about that.
2: Dr. Jordan Peterson, author of 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos. It is available now in bookstores and on Amazon. I have two books right now, team, on my bedside table. One of them is about narco-terrorism in Mexico. That's probably not going to be inspiring but important information, obviously. Uh, This, though, is a book that I plan to read in the weeks ahead because everything that I'm seeing looks great. You should check it out for yourself. Dr. Jordan Peterson, thank you so much for uh, coming in person, chatting with us here on the show. We really appreciate it.
3: Thanks very much for the invitation. I hope you enjoy the book. And,
2: uh, team, we're going to close out the Freedom Hunt today. With that, uh, please do some of your thoughts at facebook.com slash bucksexton or also officialteambuck@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Until tomorrow, shields high.